Hello and greetings. We're so glad that you've joined us and we're glad that you're interested in spiritual things. My name's Ethan and I work with the Venice Church of Christ. We're disciples, making disciples on the west side of Los Angeles. And we're exploring some of the Jewish people who live during the Second Temple period. That period goes from about 530 before Jesus to about 70 of our era. And it's also known as the post-exilic period. When we talk about it, we often divide it by the empires that are ruling over it. It's, many of these are seen in the book of Daniel. Uh, the Persian Empire reigns at the beginning of this period from about 538 to 334. And then we have two Greek empires, the Macedonian empires of the Ptolemies and the Seleucids. The Ptolemies rule over Israel from 334 to 200, and then Seleucids from 200 to 167. And 167 is the time that they uh, declare the law of Moses illegal to be followed. They offer a pig on the altar in the temple. And they try to ban circumcision. And the, Hasman, the, the Maccabees rise up in rebellion, and their rebellion is successful. And so they, as the Hasmoneans rule from 167 to 63, and then the Romans come in from 63 uh, B.C. until uh, well into our era. But uh, they destroy the temple in the year 70 of our era. And therefore, we consider that the end of the Second Temple period. It's a very challenging time in Jewish history. The people at the beginning are still trying to come to grips with the apocalypse known as the, the destruction of Babylon, of, of the Jerusalem and the temple by the Babylonians in 586, uh, which affected them politically, economically, socially, and as well as religiously. There was no Davidic king on the throne, and their, uh, the land of Israel did not belong to the Israelites. Some or all of the Jews lived in foreign lands, and wherever they lived, they were subject to a foreign and pagan king or emperor. So where was Yahweh in all of this? How is he still Lord? How could the Jews live faithfully in these conditions? At the beginning of this period, uh, Yahweh is inspiring prophets and instructors to provide Israel with guidance about what would come to pass, how they should serve him until the Messiah came. And there's a lot that we can gain from studying the character of these people and, and their, their example that's been left to us. And let us today consider Nehemiah governor of Judea. We learn about Nehemiah from the book that bears his name, Nehemiah 1-13. In ancient times, Ezra and Nehemiah were considered one book. But Nehemiah is unique among the historical chronicles because it's written in the first person. We're hearing Nehemiah's autobiography. He's mentioned many times in apocryphal literature primarily because of the wall that he helped to build. Uh, well, we learn about him in, the, in his book, his name means Yahweh has comforted. He's the son of Hakaliah in, in chapter 1 and verse 1. In the year 445, around November, December, uh, we meet him. He's in Susa, which is the old capital of Elam, now one of the capital of the Persian kings. And at that time he is informed of the sad condition of the walls of Jerusalem and the dangers that the Jews are finding themselves in the first three verses. Because of that, in verses 4 through 11, he pray, fasts and mourns for days. He prays a prayer of confession and penitence before Yahweh. Now we're told at the end of chapter uh, 1 and verse 11 that he's cupbearer to the king. A cupbearer is in charge of mixing the wine for the king. And he's right at the king's side. It's a very loyal, trustworthy person who does that because that's a very easy way of poisoning the king in terms of how the wine gets mixed. And so a very high-level servant is what Nehemiah is before the king. 
And so Artaxerxes, who was king at this time, notices Nehemiah's sadness about four months later. He asks why in chapter 2, and after a quick prayer. And Nehemiah kind of sets forth you know, what, what's going on and what he'd like to do about it. The fact that his city is in great distress, the city of his fathers. And uh, Artaxerxes says what to be done. That's when he prays, and he wants to go back, and he wants to build this wall to protect the city of Jerusalem. And he is sent by the king to go to Jerusalem to set things in order and to work on the wall. And he's granted resources and the opportunity to do this. And that's the a good core of the book of Nehemiah from chapter 2 and verse 9 through chapter 7 and 73 is about repairing the wall. He gets to Jerusalem, then he goes out and he inspects the wall and looks at the condition of the wall around. Uh, in the middle of the night, nobody noticed, knows, except for a couple of people he's brought with him. He then lets the, the Jews know about his plan to repair the wall. And at the end of chapter 2, they're preparing themselves for the work, even though the foreigners around them despise it. And different families are working to work on their wall and repair it in different places. Uh, Sanballat, Tobiah, and others. These are the guys who are in charge of, of the area around Judah. We have to remember this time, Judah is not its own province. It's part of the province beyond the river. And there are the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Arabs, other nations are there. And they, some of them didn't get exiled. So they have uh, more resources, more power base than Judah does. And it suits them very well to have Jerusalem in a very weak and prone position. And so they were constantly to beset Nehemiah, try to get Nehemiah in trouble, try to get Nehemiah any way they can away from that wall. Uh, they threaten military action. And so that, that Nehemiah has half the Jews take up men arms and half of them continue to work on the wall in chapter 4. Uh, so then Sanballat, Tobiah, Geshem, others try new techniques to threatening Nehemiah with false reports that he's trying to, oh, uh, to rebel against the king. Uh, hires people to try to get him to show fear and to act inappropriately. The prophets even try to get uh, Nehemiah to fear it that day. Nehemiah stands firm, though he does not give in to these temptations. He overcomes them in chapter 6. We're told that the wall is finished in 52 days. And a lot of the rest of the book includes a lot of directives by Nehemiah about how God should be serving the temple, making sure the Levitical orders are properly set up and fed, uh, and establish choirs to praise God on the wall. Uh, a lot of the other things we see in the book include his administration, because he is made governor. He doesn't make a lot of it in the book, but he is declared governor of Judea. And he receives complaints from the poor who were in debt slavery to the wealthy. They owed money, they couldn't pay it back, and so they're essentially slaves to their to the, the ones who to to their creditors. Uh, he rebu Nehemiah rebukes those who had enslaved his their own people and expected them to be set free, and they were set free in chapter five. And in chapter five, he lets us know that he does not take his rightful food allowance. He does not extort the people through taxation because they're so poor and weak. Instead, he himself feeds 150 people from his table every day. And so we're getting an idea of just how wealthy Nehemiah is. Yes, he's a servant of the king. He's a cupbearer. Let's put him in a position to be very wealthy and, and to be able to, to handle things like this. 
In chapter 8 and verse 9, he presides over the reading of the law and with, the, with Ezra exhorts the people to not weep. When the Israelites reaffirm their covenant with God, establishing he is good and the people are sinful, uh, the consequence of foreign dominion, and they promise to observe the law of Moses in chapter 9 and 10. Nehemiah in chapter 10 verse 1 is the first signatory to that covenant. In chapter 13, when he read in the law that no Ammonite should enter the assembly, he has to buy his furniture taken out of the temple and the chamber of the temple that had been placed, and he gives it over for the temple vessels. Furthermore, in chapter 13, he discovers the Levites are not getting their proper provisioning. He makes sure it gets taken care of and that the food is, is stored properly. He enforces the Sabbath when observance of it had grown lax and many foreigners come into trade and things of that nature. And he noticed as with Ezra, that there was a lot of intermarrying going on with the nations around them. The children were not speaking Hebrew, they were speaking the language of foreigners, and he rebukes the people for what they were doing. He has to chase away one of the sons of Jehoiada uh, for being the son-in-law of Sanbalat and, and establishing those uh, power networks outside of Judah and not entirely within it. And so, as, as the book of Nehemiah ends, Nehemiah makes his great declaration of, of what he has been trying to do and what he has done. Thus I cleansed them from everything foreign, and I established the duties of the priests and Levites, each in his work, and I provided for the wood offering at the appointed times and for the first fruits. Remember me, O oh my God, for good. And so we can see the good Nehemiah started to do for Israel and Yahweh. So how do we can notice from the story of Nehemiah that the condition of Judah and Jerusalem in the 5th century is not good. Jerusalem's walls in a state of disrepair. Now we don't know how long that's been the case, whether it had been in disrepair uh, for almost the 80 years since they had been back, or whether this was a recent uh, event that had taken place because of some of the local tribes around them, or because there had been a failed revolt. We don't know the situation definitively. Uh, however the wall got to that condition, though, means that Jerusalem is exposed and prone. And it is truly an affliction or approach, as is said in Nehemiah 1.3. In Nehemiah 7, verse 4, just kind of a explanatory comment, Nehemiah mentions that there are very few people living in Jerusalem, and that houses were very far apart, and there wasn't really a lot of business going on there. So it cannot thrive as an economic center, as a city uh, befitting its standing as long as it has no wall. And in the province beyond the river, it's a very marginal position. Nobody's standing up for them. And so the Samaritans and the Phoenicians and the Ammonites and the Arabs and others are in much better positions. And they work to keep Judah in that weak position. And the nobles and the elites of these other groups are using the influence within Judah to keep that status quo, to... Uh, maintain their power and to work towards syncretism. You know, Tobiah has uh, a part, is, is in the temple and uh, Sanbalat having, you know, making sure that there, you know, there's Judeans marrying into Sanbalat's family for prestige and, and, and power. And so that's working towards syncretism as well to being like the other nations and, and, and losing their distinctiveness. Now Nehemiah, who is a diaspora Jew of great wealth and stature, he proves willing to become a champion for Jerusalem and for Judah. And he risks everything he has to make the people of God's conditions better. And it's very interesting that Nehemiah has all of this great standing. He is a very close associate to the king. 
he is well positioned to be this champion. A very strong influence in Artaxerxes, and a man Artaxerxes can trust. We don't know. He lives in Susa. He may never have actually visited Jerusalem before he visits there the first time in chapter 2. Maybe he'd been there before. We don't know that. That's speculation. But we have to at least consider that possibility. Because why should he care about Jerusalem? He has a very comfortable life where he is. He is the cupbearer of the king. He's fantastically wealthy. He's able to later support all these people out of his own purse. So why does he care about Jerusalem? And, and that's what's really unprecedented about Israel's situation in the 5th century B.C. Yes, some Jews had returned to Judah, but a lot, large number remained in Diaspora. They remained in Babylon. They went to other places. How is that going to work? What loyalty would Diaspora Jews show toward the land of Israel? Would they prove more accommodationist and syncretic, uh, observing the the, the 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 gods of the nations and the customs of the nations, or would they remain firm from the covenant? But notice what Nehemiah says to Artaxerxes, and it really tells you a lot about how he feels about his people. Let the king live forever. Nehemiah 2. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? He feels this very strong feeling that where he's at is not really home. In a very real sense, his home is where his fathers are buried. His home is Jerusalem. And he takes great care and concern for it in the position that he has. And in fact, both he and Ezra will display great faith and confidence in Yahweh, will believe firmly in the land of Judah, and work diligently to restore what has fallen to disrepair. And we have this very interesting contrast, where in fact, it's the diaspora Jews, it's Ezra and Nehemiah, who because of their distance, are proving more faithful to Torah, to the law, to the covenant, to Yahweh, than the Jews on the ground, so to speak, in Judah, who are proving far more willing to accommodate and be syncretic in order to make peace with the nations around them. As we can see in chapter 13, Nehemiah is extremely personally invested in Jerusalem and Judah. And as a wealthy Jew with strong ties to the king, he's in a position where he can provide meaningful benefit to Judah. And when he's made governor, as we said, he does not enrich himself in that position, but he spends a lot of money to maintain the office. Meanwhile, he skillfully defies the status quo on the ground by frustrating his opponents who seek to block his efforts, and he proved unyielding to threats and dangers. And again, we have to establish, he didn't have to do any of it. He was under no compulsion to do any of it. And it, it turned out well, which is great. But think about how badly it could have turned out if, in fact, the word got back to the king, and the king doubted for a moment Nehemiah's faithfulness to him. That in the end, Nehemiah could have lost his head, his standing, his wealth, uh, and plunged Judah even into a worse condition than before if, if things had gone badly. But Nehemiah also, interestingly, does not stay to bask in the blessings he provides Judah. He serves as governor to help fix the wall, stabilize the situation, and then we're told that he returned to the king, and he went back to serving the king 
which is strongly suggested in Nehemiah chapter 2, but made explicit in, in chapter 13, where he points out that part of the reason why things changed uh, and the Levites weren't getting their food was because, in verse 6, he was not in Jerusalem, but uh, had went to the king, and he asked leave to, for, of the king to come back to set some things back in order. And, and so... Even though he considers Jerusalem his home, he doesn't stay there. He goes back to do the work he has to do for the king. So Nehemiah is a champion for Yahweh and for his covenant and his city. He leverages his position and his skill to put Jerusalem on a more secure footing. And he does so because he wants to honor God. And he wants God to remember what he has done for him and for his people. What would have been of Jerusalem if it didn't have a champion like Nehemiah? It's an important thing to consider. And it becomes very important for us as Christians in the 21st century. Because the condition of the kingdom of God can be seen very much like terms of 5th century Israel. That on the ground it seems that the church is exposed and prone. That its enemies are strategizing to keep it weak, marginalized, and feckless. And that there are forces against the church are working even within the church. And use their influence to keep the church weak and prone and marginalized and influence its people toward accommodation and syncretism. That they are conformed to the world in Romans 12, 2. In Ephesians 6, 12, these forces, there are flesh not against, uh, uh, are, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the forces of darkness in the, in the, in the spiritual places. And there's false teachers in the midst of the people in 1 Timothy 6, 3 through 9, and they move toward accommodation and syncretism with the world. And so to this day, the kingdom of God needs champions among its diaspora so to leverage their positions and skill sets to advance his position. What do you mean by diaspora? Well, in 1 Peter chapter 1, uh, Peter writes to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. And you can say, well, maybe he's writing like James is to Jewish Christians. And certainly, while well, Jewish Christians may be part of the group he's talking about, in chapter 2 and verse 9, he demonstrates, he said, verse 10 he says that once you were not a people. And that certainly is something that would not be true of Israel, but is true of those who are Gentiles. And so, even after we have Jew and Gentile both in the kingdom, we still have this idea of diaspora, that, that Christians are elect exiles. That, in fact, that we approach the heavenly Zion in Hebrews 12 and verse 22. Uh, that heavenly Zion is our home, but we're not there yet. We strive diligently for it, but we're here. We're seeking to do his purposes here. And as Paul suggests in terms of slaves, and it's something true of all of us in 1 Corinthians 7, 20-24, that we are to serve God in the condition in which we are called. There's a lot of good that Christians can do when they use their position and skills to help restore the faith to its purity and to proclaim that faith to outsiders, to use the uh, gifts given to us according to God's varied grace to serve in 1 Peter 4. 7 through 11, especially in verses 10 through 11. It's very easy for us as modern Americans to, to make a bifurcation and to see the world in terms of a secular and spiritual divide, that we have our secular life and our spiritual life. But Nehemiah shows us that our sometimes our quote-unquote secular skills are very necessary in a spiritual environment. That there are ways we can use what God has blessed us in our secular life to advance his spiritual purposes, just like Nehemiah did. That as Nehemiah devoted himself fully to God and his purposes and sacrificially blessed Jerusalem and Judah, that we, 
as Christians, do well to devote ourselves to God in Christ, to sacrificially bless all around us, to be that holy living sacrifice that we're called to be in Romans 12 and verse 1. So we've seen the life of Nehemiah, that Jerusalem was in a very difficult place, and it needed a champion desperately, that God raised up Nehemiah, and he restored the wall and the righteousness to Judah. That the cause of God in Christ needs similar champions today. Those who will, so who will rise up and be a champion for the heavenly Zion? Perhaps you will. Perhaps you'd like to learn more about what it means to follow Jesus or more about Nehemiah. Maybe you just want to talk or you got a prayer request. Maybe there's some way we can be of service. Please let us know. Please contact me through my website at deverbovitae.com. That's www.deverbovitae.com. Or perhaps you... Uh, would like to know more about the Venice Church of Christ, you can find us online at venicechurchofchrist.org or on social media, Facebook, Twitter, Google+, Meetup, things like that. Uh, thank you again for uh, joining with us. We uh, pray that God blesses you as you seek to follow Him. Have a great day.